Station. Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan, and we're broadcasting live on August 22nd from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Today on the show, we have a couple of topics. Later on, we're going to hear about a new group. It's called Parenting with Pride. They're a progressive response to the right-wing group Moms for Liberty. But first, we're going to get an update coming out of the new College of Florida in Sarasota. The latest is that students will be sent to a third hotel to live. This one is about four miles from campus. And joining me by Zoom this hour are guests, Mike Sanderson, who is a New College alum, and Stephen Walker, who is education reporter at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. He's been reporting extensively on Sarasota School Board and on this year's quickly moving developments at New College of Florida. So I want to welcome both of you to Tuesday Cafe, Mike and Stephen. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad both of you could come on. Thanks so much for joining us. So we'll talk a lot about the changes that are happening at New College during this interview, but the latest has to do with the school closing some dorms and forcing most juniors and seniors to live in hotels. Stephen, why don't you take it from there with what's the latest we know about the living situation for students at New College of Florida? Yeah, so a little bit of background. Um, Earlier this summer, I believe it was in May, um, New College of Florida commissioned a report, um, its first of two reports on all of the buildings in on campus. And that report, you know, was a facilities report examining, you know, a lot of different aspects. But one thing it did mention was that the pay dorms, all three of them, were um, virtually in, uninhabitable. Uh, even in the May report, it said that. And when they took they took that information and they started making arrangements to, uh, you know, facilitate off-campus housing for students. And this was in discussions back in May to June. Um, a lot of it not communicated with students, at least very openly. There was public meetings, but nothing like sent to students. Housing arrangements were changed very consistently with students wondering, not really knowing where they would actually live. Um, Students were being sent into the pay dorms, uh, specifically upperclassmen who were coming back to New College were being assigned to pay dorms when they should have been or were already assigned to upperclassmen dorms of Dort and Goldstein, which are apartment style dorms that are newer and more recently built. So that's where they were assigned. And because of the influx of athletes and first year students to New College of Florida, the college made the decision to assign those students to Dorton Goldstein and reassign upperclassmen to pay dorms, despite the report saying that there were they were complete like virtually uninhabitable. And then again, another second report just backed up the same claim that the first report said, which was that they're you can't live in them. And so they've been coordinating with several hotels, one of which is the Home Two Suites, which is about a quarter mile north of campus. That hotel, um, they have established a contract already that's been approved by the board of trustees. It's about $1.6 million uh, for students to live there. They've also um, 
apparently come to an agreement with Hilton right next to it to house students and the Hyatt Regency, which is about four miles south of campus in downtown Sarasota, right on the bayfront, and it's a four-star hotel. But those contracts haven't emerged. It's unclear, um, specifically with the Hyatt Regency, how much that's going to cost New College or students. And right now it's not immediately clear what transportation they're offering um, from what I'm getting from a lot of people texting me and sending me updates via email. Nothing I've like reported yet on, you know, a story uh, with the Herald Tribune, but just like things I'm collecting ahead of time now. Um, it doesn't seem like they have a plan right now. Like they want to offer transportation, but there's no transportation plan right now. Um, and specifically, that's an issue for a lot of students who may not have off uh, like transportation and they're going to be living four miles off campus, which is about an hour and a half walk, a 30 minute bike ride or pretty expensive Ubers every day to school if there's no transportation. So that's the current state is that there's three different hotels. Um, the upperclassmen specifically will be from my understanding, in the Hyatt Regency, there are first-year students who are not athletes in hotels uh, at the Home 2 and Hilton hotels. And then, you know, second years as well are up there. And specifically, the on-campus are mostly freshmen and athletes. And that's the current state of things right now as uh, hotel move-in started on Sunday. Um, and the Hyatt Regency specifically, their move-in starts tomorrow morning um, and I will be there. So, yeah. That's the voice of Stephen Walker, education reporter at Sarasota Herald Tribune. We're talking about New College of Florida. He's been reporting extensively on this year's developments there. We also have as a guest, Mike Sanderson, who is a New College alum. And Mike, one of the things that you've been posting about is how students would get from these hotels to campus. You posted a photo of a chain-linked fence along US, busy US 41. You also posted a, a, a photo that had a sign warning about wildlife. Why don't you tell us about what the route would be like if people decided if students decided to walk from these hotels to campus yeah and that's where it was on august 10th where it was the home to stay which is relatively close to campus but which there are only two routes one um, a nature trail which passes through some wooded areas and as you said has signs warning of uh, alligators and snakes and don't stay on the trail and then the other route is along us 41 which um, near the airport on the sarasota bradenton area is not a uh, safe area to walk in, particularly at night, um, and at one point is between a chain link fence and traffic that's going, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour. So um, that is just the home to stay, which was discussed at the Board of Trustees meeting August 10th. And what really the the returning students and their parents are really suffering because this is just, you know, days before they're supposed to move in, like less than two weeks before classes, they're getting for the second time this summer learning that their housing arrangements have been invalidated and they don't know where they're supposed to move to. They don't know how they're gonna get to uh, the cafeteria to eat. Will they be eligible for meal plans? They're learning these things from press releases. Uh, and it's hard to say if the, the lack of communication from the interim administration is just out of uh, incompetence or indifference or intentionally malicious to create this effect and try to drive returning students to not come back several of which have decided in the past few weeks to not come back. And it's just really a deeply upsetting situation for a lot of people here. And it's it's very unnecessary because as noted, the condition of the pay dorms, which are the traditional freshman dorms because of the arrangement, um, that's been known for some time. 
Uh, so to blame the previous administration and say there wasn't a plan to fix them, the previous administrations concluded that the construction made it very difficult to fix. So it's not that they didn't create a plan. It's that they concluded that this was a crisis anyway. But um, regardless, to have you know, told students um, just your housing is invalidated, and you're going to go to these dorms, and then less than days before you're supposed to move in, you're going to a hotel. There hasn't been information about the Hyatt um, Regency until uh, just uh, just last week. So it's really a deeply upsetting situation, not just because of the conditions, uh, but also the communication and the the continual mixed messages that have left people just really scrambling upset. Where are, their, where are they and their kids going to live? How are they going to eat? Are they going to be in danger traveling to and from class? You know, this is really a, a terrible situation that's unfolding here over the summer. And if this sounds familiar to anyone, we have been talking, you know, throughout the summer and throughout the spring semester as well about the changes at New College of Florida. And just a little bit over a month ago, I had a student on and I had the parent of a of a student on talking about the the big housing issues at the time, but they've even changed. They've even gotten kind of more complex since then. Last week, the interim the, the college sent out a um, a press release that had quotes in it from the interim president, Richard Corcoran. The college wrote that the housing exceeds the quality at most other schools, here referring to the housing in the the hotels that they're referring to. But we've also been learning, uh, and maybe um, Stephen, you can fill us in on this. What are some of the restrictions that students face if they are assigned to one of these hotels instead of a traditional dorm on campus? That's right. You mentioned restrictions. And when when you said that the college had been kind of touting like, oh, we're putting students up in a four star hotel on the Bayfront, like that's kind of awesome. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's a great hotel and a great location, but a college student isn't on vacation. They're on campus. They're trying to study. And that's, I guess, the advantage of a lot of, like, at least the Dorton Goldstein buildings from my conversations with students are the ideal location for upperclassmen because of their proximity to libraries and how on campus they are actually, like they are there on the Bayfront side. And uh, being four miles from campus is very, you know, limiting in terms of you really just feel off campus because you really are. But in terms of like living in a dorm versus living in a hotel room, you know, a dorm room, you can make your own, really, you can, you can bring decorations, you can have people over, you can uh, bring appliances uh, to cook in your dorm room, however limited that may be. But um, the terms of the contract, at least with home two suites, uh, and I would assume this would probably extend to other hotels is these students are not allowed to decorate their rooms. It says explicitly they're not supposed to hang decorations on the walls or, you know, alter the room in any way. Uh, They are not allowed to bring any appliances such as a microwave, a toaster oven, coffee pots, you know, a hot plate to help, or, you know, an air fryer, things that you can maybe cook your own food with. A lot of these hotels, I would say, yeah, all of them don't have kitchenettes. Uh, We're talking like a mini fridge and and a Keurig coffee machine if maybe. Um, Room service such as uh, DoorDash and Grubhub, um, they're prohibited. You can't order DoorDash to your door. Um, Students can't have alcohol on property and can't host parties. Um, The alcohol also extends to even if you're 21, obviously not if you're before, (laughs) if you're younger than 21, but if you are of legal age, you still can't have alcohol on property. Um, And you are permitted one guest per room so you can't have any gatherings of like three or four friends over. Um, now, 
I, I think the college would come back with that and say there's a lot of common spaces that you can meet with people in these hotels. However, that's really only viable, I'd say, in maybe the home two suites where they have the entire hotel as the like rented out. So it's really you can feel safe enough, safe in air quotes, maybe like to go and, you know, commune with your peers there. Whereas at these other hotels like the Hyatt Regency, they only have a certain number of rooms and everyone else is going to be like tourists and you don't know who's staying next to you. And so you don't really perhaps maybe at like 10 o'clock at night, then you need to study and you don't want to take a shuttle to campus or maybe there isn't one to campus. So you're going to go to the lobby of the hotel with four people to go study. You don't know who could walk in there. It's, it's, there's a lot, there's safety concerns that have been raised and also those restrictions, like you mentioned. That's Stephen Walker, education reporter at Sarasota Herald Tribune. He's been reporting extensively on New College of Florida. We're also hearing from Mike Sanderson, a New College alum, and you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa, and we're getting a whole bunch of emails and text messages, which I'll get to in just a second. But I want to ask Stephen, I want to, you mentioned earlier the contract that we have for the Home Two Suites, and you asked for the contract between the Hyatt Regency and the college, what kind of response did you get when you asked for that contract? Yeah, so um, at the time of the uh, that I published my story about um, them closing the pay dorms and they sent out that press release, that was August 17th. Um, before that story went up, I reached out to my contacts at their communications office at New College um, haven't heard anything. I sent in a public records request with the uh, legal counsel for New College and their communications department made, made them both tagged on that public records request. I have not received that back. I reached out to the Hyatt Regency, who also hasn't gotten back to me, but I have unconfirmed reports from sources that have talked to me about it that like they people who are looking into this uh, on behalf of maybe their student or a student they know Hyatt Regency at least at the time of the publication was mostly unaware from like a mid-level management down thing uh, level that this was happening um obviously I'm sure they've been filled in and if this was something done up top like between somebody who runs the Hyatt more in a senior position made this decision and now is communicating it with staff. But it's, it seems like it was a very, uh, you know, I don't want to say rushed, but it seems like they came to an agreement before there was a contract set up kind of like they did with the hotels, but it doesn't, it doesn't appear to me that there's a contract right now. I've requested it and haven't received it. So it's noted in all my reporting that there's been no contract provided. So there's really no details yet as to, what restrictions there are. There could be less restrictions at this hotel for all we know. That's likely not the case, but we don't know because the contract's not available. I want to read a couple of these emails and texts that have come in because people apparently feel very passionately about New College of Florida and about the changes that are happening there. Jane Armstrong from Venice actually left a voicemail that uh, was was uh, transcribed for us. And she says, I just want to commend you guys for covering what's going on at New College Sarasota and that it's, he, she calls it a nexus of nonsense. And I really, really appreciate what you're doing to cover on what's going, cover what's going on down there and a uh, long term time supporter of the station. So thank you for that, Jane, and we'll continue to cover it. And thanks to, of course, to the alumni and students who are telling us what's happening there and the great reporting from outlets like the Sarasota Herald Tribune. So thanks to Stephen and to Mike as well. So um, I also want, uh, there's someone writes in, this is, uh, this comes in from Kurt and says, 
Thank you for your continued coverage of the debacle at New College. Please tell people about a GoFundMe to pay for lawyers to fight back. And so there is a, a legal action against the state for by by some New College of Florida alumni and students and, and faculty uh, who are who are uh, trying to fight back against some of the state laws. And apparently, they have a GoFundMe. So um, Kurt wanted me to let you know about that. And David says, "Thank you so much for bringing Mike and Stephen on your show today. This is an important topic. I'm a New College alum, and I'm so disappointed by these grifters that are taking over." And David goes on to say, "I hope that you'll discuss the bizarre and disappointing appointment of David Rancourt as Dean of Students." Rancourt is a greedy lobbyist with zero student affairs experience. What the heck is going on in Sarasota? So maybe you can take that one, Stephen. Uh, what do we know about David Rancourt? Right. So that's something that was reported in Florida politics. I haven't written anything about that, but I am aware of it. And it's something that I have, you know, kind of internalized as part of a larger uh, trend that I'm seeing in New College, where a lot of the people hired are people that are from Tallahassee or people who've worked with Richard Corcoran in some capacity in the past. Um, for example, Kevin Hoft, who's the vice president of enrollment, um, worked at the Florida Department of Education as a policy director with Richard Corcoran. Um, I believe uh, Joe Gruder's wife is part of the uh, foundation now for New College. So you, you're looking at people, like even it, it even goes all the way down to like um, somebody who was in athletics employee at Richard Corcoran's wife's uh, charter school in Tallahassee got a contract with the school to provide food for the end of last semester. It's like you, you can draw all these lines between people. And that's just another one, too, is you're looking at um, David Rancourt and his history as a lobbyist. Um, it's, it's part of an overarching trend, I would say. Mike, do you have anything to add about either David Rancourt or any of the others, what our, our listener is calling grifters getting jobs here or contracts with the New College of Florida? Yeah, um, you mentioned Kevin Hope, VP of Enrollment, who has no experience in higher education. Uh, Dave Rancourt, who has never worked in higher education. Uh, these things are not under the Department of Education. They're under the Board of Governors, which was passed in a constitutional amendment by you know, 61 to 39 in 2002 to remove the politics from the state university system. And particularly, Bob Graham, when he, Senator Bob Graham, when he posted that, was uh, citing what was happening at New College uh, because it's a very small fish. Um, they're treating this like a media situation. Students are learning from press releases that they're not going to have rooms. And instead of communicating to students that they are sympathetic or they're hoping they're bare with them, instead they're putting out press releases blaming the previous administration uh, for things that are not true. And it's really, it's um, just the entire thing is treated as a political situation, as a PR situation, and without respecting their responsibility to the returning students you know, to ensure that they're safe and can finish their education. Um, both, you know, their fiduciary responsibility, duty of care, and also uh, their responsibility to keep the enrollment up because they're bleeding students and it's going to, you know, it's not sure, like, if they're going to be held accountable for the destruction that they've done, which is, you know, it's unclear if it's malicious or incompetence, but it's just absolutely unnecessary and terrible what's happened here at New College this in 2023. That's Mike Sanderson, a New College of Florida alum, and you're listening to Tuesday Cafe. We also have a guest, Stephen Walker, education reporter at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. And uh, 
Mike, I'm going to, you pointed out something that Richard Corcoran said at a recent, well, in a June board of trustees meeting, and I'm going to play a little clip of what Richard Corcoran is talking about here. And it has to do with, we're going back to housing now, possibly housing students in a dorm that's called the B dorm. So um, after we hear from Richard Corcoran and about why there are no students being housed in that, what their plans are to potentially demolish it. Um, and going back to where we're, people aren't living on as many on campus, they're getting sent to these these um, hotel rooms. So let's hear what Richard Corcoran says, and then I can bring you back in, Mike, to talk about the context of B dorm and why there aren't any why why some of the students aren't being housed there instead. This is the trustees to vote. So the, the two discrepancies that you talk about, yes, that whole ultimately in the master plan, that whole field. Um, and probably five or six of the challenge plans, all of it was cleared, including the 58th Street houses and most of them. So what we're saying is we want to move forward. The wellness plan, because it's not um, part of the Palmer buildings, would have to wait. We, we, that demolition wouldn't happen until the fall because we got to go get bog approval for that. The rest we do not. Um, but you guys are authorizing us to do that so we don't have to come back to you. And in the fall, if the wellness bu- building's still there, they're, they're over capacity, they need more space, um, and, and services are in demand. And so all of that could be accommodated, whether we left them there until the fall we had approval or we moved them but left the building there empty until the fall. That's what we're asking you guys for approval so that we can move forward as qu- quickly as possible to transform the campus. So that's the interim president of New College of Florida, Richard Corcoran, talking about transforming the campus and part of what he's talking about there is this B dorm. So Mike Sanderson, New College alum, what's, how, what does this have to do with the students moving into the, the hotels? That clip. So B dorm is a 32 bed dorm that's located adjacent to the library. And there are uh, four office buildings there that uh, are in fact scheduled for slated for demolition. It was a plan approved by the Board of Governors in 2019. I was at that meeting and I since reviewed the plan. Uh, I believe Ms. Richard Corker misstates things there because B-Dorm was not cleared for demolition. Uh, neither was the counseling center. He has plans to put a large building there that may or may not be good, but he could reopen this dorm and bring 32 students back to campus and have them be adjacent to the library. B-Dorm was just renovated within, uh, I think a year ago. And the fact that uh, he has no master plans for this building he plans to put on this property. And um, there's this housing crisis happening now. Uh, B-Dorm is not in some central location. It's on the corner of this property. He could bring students back there. And the fact that he's not considering that shows that, you know, he's, uh, it's not like pay where there are acknowledged very serious conditions there um, from the, uh, with the mold report. B-Dorm was just renovated. The interim dean of housing confirmed that it's not because they can't put students there. It's simply because Richard Corcoran wants to demolish it, um, which hasn't even been approved by the Board of Governors, as far as I understand. So he could really reopen that dorm and show like that he's trying to help current students come back to campus, but instead he seems to have ruled it out because he simply wants to demolish it, um, which is unlikely to happen in the next four months. Certainly they're not gonna break ground on a new building in the next four months. You know, a lot of this has to do with the kind of turnover of students. We've talked to students on this show in the past who are transferring to other schools, a lot of them in the Northeast. And there's also this influx of students. And part of this has to do with athletics. So, Stephen, why don't you uh, give our listeners who aren't familiar with New College of Florida the past and its athletic past and how Richard Corcoran and the Board of Trustees 
are trying to transform it into a more academic school and what this has to do with the dorm situation. Right. So something that I think the, I think you'd say the board of governors or the governor himself kind of appointed a lot of these trustees and then down the line, Richard Corcoran as the interim to do is to, to what they would say, improve new colleges numbers. Um, it, it is a smaller school um, and they have came forward with metrics that would indicate that new college is struggling. And so they would say, we need to increase enrollment. We need to bring in more students. Um, and so the method by which I would, in my understanding from my reporting that Richard Corcoran decided to do this was by establishing an athletic department. Um, athletics at New College had previously mostly been limited to club and intramural athletics. Um, there's There's been basketball, rowing, powerlifting, sailing, uh, esports, different things like that, but nothing to the extent of like an NAIA um, athletics department competing like in sanctioned games and sanctioned competition, mostly just intramural and club. Um, in March, um, so it was about a month after Richard Corcoran took over as interim, um, he met with the admissions department in an all-hands meeting about uh, enrollment. Uh, and this is something I've reported on and has been contended between members of that staff that were there who spoke with me and I've reported on it. And they wish to remain anonymous out of fear of retribution. Uh, and so it's been a point of contention between them and the college of what was said at that meeting. But uh, the staff claimed that Richard Corcoran was very aggressive, telling them to act in a morally, ethically gray area in recruiting students, um, you know, misrepresenting facilities, saying like, oh, we're, we're, we'll have them when the college doesn't have athletic facilities right now in really any type of extent to field intercollegiate athletics. Um, and the staff contend that Richard Corcoran told the staff to, he, he, he likened getting 300 incoming students to SEAL Team 6 getting Osama bin Laden. And the, the college in Corcoran vehemently denied that he said that. Anyways, 30 minutes after that meeting ended, they sent out a press release to all media outlets that the college is establishing an athletics department. And so it, it seemed very clear from the timing of that meeting and that press release that athletics was their main driving force behind getting new and in, incoming students in a record uh, enrolling. So I have some numbers here from my story of the 320 incoming students, 328 incoming students at the time that this was published, more than a third of them were student athletes. And of that 70 of them at the time were enrolled to play baseball. Um, so you're talking in, of the like baseball, it's male. And so you know, you have this incoming influx of students who are changing the demographic of the college. And so you're looking at changes in, in diversity of the, of the student body, as well as just a massive influx of students that the college was not prepared to take facilities wise. Um, and I think they kind of got caught in it when, you know, they were, they were prepared to bring in these students and then they realized we have to shut down a whole dorm and, they knew that there was issues with the dorm before they just hadn't gotten an official report. And now that they got the official report, we're in the situation where they have too many students coming in, not enough beds for them. So they have to, they, they have like an influx of money from the legislature 
because of the support that the governor and the state have of the leadership here. So they're just getting funds poured in to pay for this, honestly. And the college wouldn't, I don't think, would have been able to afford hotels like this or thing like a mold report and they that's what something they point to as well as like oh the previous administration let this happen um you know they didn't do anything about this well you could also argue that i don't think they were in a position to because they didn't they a lot of the funding they would request would be denied um and i believe one source told me that uh they asserted that nobody was in a better position in the last you know, several years to do something about this problem, even not at New College, as Richard Corcoran did as Speaker of the House and then with the Department of Education and all the polias in Tallahassee. So they would point to the fact that the college, you know, it wasn't that the previous administration didn't do anything about it, it's that they couldn't. And now that they can, you know, we're seeing a lot of shift in dorm shutting people moving and it's all just being prompted by the fact that there's more students than they can handle. Well, let's finish this segment with Mike Sanderson, who is an alumnus from New College. And we just heard from Steven that there are 70 new baseball players coming in. All those are new students who are males. Um, What are you seeing as far as the shift from um, an academics institution toward a a sports-based institution? And what about the demographic shift as well that's happening, Mike? Yeah, so I think with athletics, New College has had um, thriving recreational, intramural, and even some intercollegiate support uh, sports, like a thriving intercollegiate sailing team and intercollegiate powerlifting. Um, And the thing to... We have serious questions about how this athletics program is being set up, how it's being funded, what funds these coaches are being paid out of. Um, and we're going to bring some of these concerns also to the Board of Governors. Uh, we uh, To bring it back, also these incoming students, we have evidence they have been misled about things like the athletics facilities and new colleges membership and intercollegiate organizations. But to bring it back to the housing crisis, you know, Corcoran said on July 6th at a board meeting that the incoming class was 294. And now I think it was, um, uh, Stephen said, two, 328. It's now they're saying 340. So he continued to recruit students over the summer, even though, and including recruiting an entire soccer team Uh, mostly somewhat from out of state, people who are still available in July to uh, just drive up these numbers, knowing that there weren't beds, knowing that he had already taken Pedom offline, knowing that pay was in terrible condition. And so it just really shows like, why were they continuing to recruit over the summer, something like 20, 40 people, knowing that they didn't have beds for them, knowing this housing crisis was already developing. And then to spring it, uh, in late August, as if they just learned about it days before people moving in, it just really shows you know the the pervasive. You know, it's hard to say what their motives are, but this is just a terrible situation that has developed. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much, both of you, for coming on Tuesday Cafe, Stephen and Mike. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Stephen Walker is an education reporter at Sarasota Herald Tribune, and Mike Sanderson is a New College alum. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're going to turn now to our new topic. I think our guest is joining us here. Uh, Do we have Jennifer Solomon on the line? I'm here. Great. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer. Well, let me set up the the, uh, issue at first. A new group of Florida parents is pushing back against what it calls a rising tide of right-wing extremism in the state, especially when it comes to schools and culture wars. And the new group is called Parenting with Pride. It's from a partnership with groups 
like the Human Rights Campaign, PFLAG, and Equality Florida, it can be seen as a kind of a response to the far-right parents group Moms for Liberty. So as we, as I mentioned on our Zoom, we have, we're going to talk about for the rest of the hour with Jennifer Solomon, Equality Florida's Parents and Family Support Manager, who is going to talk about parenting with pride. So welcome to WMNF, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you could join us. And I've described a little bit about what Parenting with Pride is about, but you can do it better than I can. So why was it formed and what kinds of services and supports does it offer? So basically our Parenting with Pride program was launched as a response to all the laws that have been passed and really um, parents being fed up with politicians waging a war on our families, um, banning books, censoring curriculum, um, you know, whitewashing history. Really um, parents are ready to take back our parental rights and Parenting with Pride is going to offer families um, a place to be educated, uh, to be supported and also to advocate for their families. It's interesting that you use the phrase parental rights because ever since 2020 through the pandemic, we've been hearing about parental rights, but often it's from groups like Moms for Liberty who say, you know, we want to have the right to um, send our kids to school without masks or whatever the issue is. And parents' rights uh, kind of has come to represent, at least until now, this kind of right-wing kind of uh, approach or, or view of things. But you are saying that um, there are people who aren't on the far right who also should have parents' rights. Absolutely. Um, I'm a parent. I have a child in the public school system, and my rights are just as important as someone, as a mom for liberty. I think that the, the bottom line is, as parents, we all want the right, the parental right, to raise our children the way that we see fit. And government really has no place in that. And, you know, unfortunately, Moms for Liberty um, are very loud. Um, you know, they're really not, you know, Ron DeSantis has said that this is the voice of parents in, in the state of Florida, and I disagree. Um, I think the the voice of parents in the state of Florida are uh, parents that want to make sure that our kids um, have a safe learning environment, have a place where they are getting um, information so that they can go on to college, that they can go on um, to become productive adults in society. And so parental rights are not just for some, they're for all. And some of these laws that have been passed have been targeting specifically our trans youth and we want to empower our parents to let them know that they also have rights. Um, so it's not just rights for some, it's rights for all. Laws that target trans youth. Uh, one of the things that we're hearing in school boards across the country, uh, sorry, across the state as, as school is starting, we're seeing these permission slips that have are coming back that parents have to sign if Johnny wants, if jo uh, Jonathan wants to be called Johnny, they have to get a permission slip and it kind of stems back to this, uh, maybe if, if you'd let me use this word, this phrase, this scare tactic of, of, of using pronouns or nicknames for students who have been using these, but then the schools now have this kind of, they feel this obligation that they have to be uber careful. What are your thoughts about that? So, you know, the problem is that we're not trusting our teachers to teach. And I think that stems from uh, this control. Um, dismantling public education seems to be really high on the list of, of what our legislature is doing. And that's really sad for all kids in the state. Um, 
again, you know, permission slips uh, for kids to use nicknames should be used across the board then, not just for our trans kids. So you're right. If, um, you know, Jonathan wants to use Johnny and a, a parent, you know, signs a form, our teachers are able to use that just like our trans kids. If their uh, a firm name is different than what's on their birth certificate and a parent signs a form, again, we're, we have the right to do that. Our kids have the right to be respected in the classrooms. And I find it really sad that we're not trusting our teachers to do what they're trained to do. When I send my child to school in the morning, as much as as, as we've heard some of the, the you know representatives in Tallahassee say they should just be there to learn math and English and and you know nothing else, I disagree. My child goes to school and a lot of times they're there for seven, eight hours with trusted adults. And I want my child to be looked at not just as uh, a number, as you know, student ID number, such and such. I want them to be there with someone who's looking out for them socially, emotionally, and academically. And so unfortunately for our teachers, yes, they are scared. They are scared to um, to support our kids and to to go the extra mile. And I really think that that's, that's a loss for all of our kids. Our guest is Jennifer Solomon, Equality Florida's Parents and Family Support Manager, who is involved in Parenting with Pride. And this is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And it's August 22nd. If you'd like to um, call in and, and let, let us know what you think about any of these issues, give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can text 813-433-0885 or email dj at wmnf.org. The, uh, the issue of having students getting support in the classroom that goes beyond the just the teaching of textbooks, this I'm thinking that this uh, survey that I read recently in the Miami Herald might come, come into play in, in that issue. They found that a new community survey from the Human Rights Campaign Foundation found that 80% of transgender or non-binary Floridians either want to move away or have already made plans to do so. Now, obviously, they interviewed adults, but I think that this, some of the issues that these adults responded to are issues that perhaps trans or non-binary students might encounter in schools. The, this um, survey found that almost 80% of trans people and more than 45% of other LGBTQ adults said that bans on gender-affirming care affect their physical or mental health or their loved ones. And more than 80% of trans and more than 76% of other LGBTQ plus adults feel that bans on gender-affirming care worsen stereotypes, discrimination, hate, and stigma. So these bans on gender affirming care, this might not deal directly with, with what students have to necessarily deal with, but I, I think this survey is getting to the point of the atmosphere, the climate in Florida. So can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know dozens of families that have had to move. Um, this is the year 2023 and we are literally having families move out of state because they can't parent their child, whether it's a safe learning environment or being able to talk to doctors about what's the uh, correct care for their children. And I think that's a really sad um, mental health of our kids. And as you can see in that survey, um, it's absolutely off the charts. When a child is in school and they're worried about what restroom they're going to use, they're not they're not paying attention to to algebra. And when, when they're worried about a, a basic right to use a restroom is taken away from them 
when they have uh, a governor and legislators that are saying, um, you know, you don't deserve to be called by your firm name. Um, you don't have the right to use a bathroom. That absolutely is weighing heavily on our on our youth and, and all of the LGBT community. You know, as a parent with a child in the school system, um, I don't want special rights for my child. I want my child to be treated just like everyone else. And that unfortunately is very difficult in this state right now. So, you know, when, when surveys like this come out, it, it's not surprising, um, but I find it, it's very, very sad. And, you know, if Florida is being used as an example of what, you know, Ron DeSantis can do to the rest of the nation, I hope people are are paying attention because um, if you look at economically what's going on in the state, a lot of it is because of these laws. Folks aren't going to move into a state where they feel that they are not in control of parenting their children. And, you know, that is that is our reality here in Florida. The there's also teacher shortages because of the the hoops that the teachers have to go through, the uncertainty that these new laws are causing. So this is causing some students, some teachers to leave the profession. And that means that students are left with classrooms without teachers. How does that impact a, a student's ability to learn? Well, I'll give you a perfect example. My daughter was a fourth grade teacher in the public school system, and she decided to leave because she could not live as her authentic self. She was not going to um, out a student. She was not going to hide the fact that um, she's happily married to her beautiful wife. Um, so the example is there. Uh, kids that are that are in the teaching uh, in the colleges uh, are getting degrees and leaving the state. Um, that does affect all. We want our kids to have um, the best opportunity uh, to get a, to get an education. And I believe there's over seven thousand empty uh, positions right now at the start of school in this state. And we should be ashamed. We should be ashamed that we are not. You know, our kids are are in. You know seventh grade English one year. And if they're going to have a substitute teacher that whole year, they're going to miss out on so many skills that, that they need to build on. And so the ripple effect is, is affecting everyone. And that's why with Parenting with Pride, we are looking to families not only that have LGBTQ children um, in the schools, but allies, because this is something that affects everyone, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're a parent, an aunt or uncle, um, our kids are suffering because of the political power and using our kids as political pawns. Our guest is Jennifer Solomon, Equality Florida's Parents and Family Support Manager, and she's involved in Parenting with Pride. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. One of the things that after Moms for Liberty uh, took off, after it got you know very well known, it converted its activism into a lot of its members running for offices like school boards. I know it's kind of early in the process for Parenting with Pride, but is that something that uh, you see your group uh, focusing on in the future? So our group is focused on supporting families, educating families, and getting them to a place where they can advocate for their child. So for one family, it may look like being able to go into a principal and um, have a discussion, put together a gender plan for their children. Um, for another family that's um, ready to advocate, I, I would love for our for our families um, to get to the point where they want to take that step to run for school board. It's not our focus, 
Um, but advocating for our loved ones, advocating for our families is definitely something that we support. Some groups have gone as far as issuing travel advisories for Florida. The Human Rights Campaign Foundation, Equality Florida, they say that the new laws in Florida pose risks for LGBTQ plus people. And I imagine that for adults, if it's if, if being in Florida or traveling to Florida is risky, it can be more so for students to, to they have a lot of, uh, of other pressures and other things that they have to be concerned about. Can you uh, elaborate on that, please? Sure. You know, a perfect example, I traveled with my 12-year-old um, over the summer and we landed in an airport in another state. And as my child was going into the bathroom, he turned around with a big smile on his face and said, Mom, I can go to the bathroom here and it's not against the law. How sad is that? We didn't go to another country, we went to another state. So, you know, these laws are absolutely affecting our kids. They're affecting um, how they feel about themselves. And, you know, is this state a place that's safe for our children? As parents, I promise you, we're going to make sure that our kids are safe. And that's part of what Parenting with Pride is. You know, we establish this statewide hub so that parents can go to one site, to our website, and find information, whether it's on um, how to safely uh, talk to a, to a principal about their child being in school, all the way to what it looks like to travel, what it looks like to, to get a passport uh, for kids that are driving driver's license. We want to make sure that we're supporting our families. For many of them, leaving the state isn't an option. Um, so we're going to stay here. We're going to fight and we're going to make sure that our families, you know, every child is supported. Every family is respected. Um, that's what we're here to do. And we're going to, you know, with the support of other partners, like you mentioned, PFLAG has chapters all over the state um, that folks can go to to meet other families, to, to provide that community. Um, I think that having allies is going to be crucial because where's our kids? We know having one affirming adult in their life can change the suicide uh, rates tremendously. For some of our kids, those were teachers. Those were guidance counselors. Those were GSA advisors. And if those folks in their life are being silenced, we need to look elsewhere to make sure that we are that support system for those students and for those families. We're speaking with Jennifer Solomon, who is with Parenting with Pride, and this is Tuesday Cafe. And we're getting some emails. Let me read a couple of these. Uh, these both uh, uh, are talking about the group Moms for Liberty, which is uh, kind of a right-wing group that is talking about um, school issues. And she's, David writes that, uh, that this is a misnomer, that they're really just moms for fascism and that the mom that quoted Hitler in a newsletter is just proof of this. That's what David writes. And Bubba writes, it's no, no, worth noting that the founder of Moms for Liberty is from Sarasota and is on the school board there. So um, not to focus too much on this group called Moms for Liberty, but the, um, you know, is it too strong to say that, that they're not for liberty, that they're actually in, in for restricting, restricting freedoms? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, what's really interesting is um, they're very loud, but they're not that big. Uh, there's way more parents that are involved with Parenting with Pride already 
we launched a week ago than Moms for Liberty. Uh, many of those parents homeschool their kids. They're not even in the public school system. And I think that we all should have the right to raise our children the way we see fit. I don't want anyone, I wouldn't want to go into anyone's home and tell them how to raise their child. They have the right. They have the right to go to a private school. They have the right to go to a charter school. They have the right to homeschool their child. What they don't have the right to do is to go into the public schools and um, remove books because it's something they don't want their child to read. And so I think that this movement that you know seems to get a lot of attention because they're pretty radical, it's not as big as they seem. Um, I was at the Board of Education meeting a couple weeks ago and there were Moms for Liberty uh, people there and there was way more of us. And it was really curious to me to see Many of them were just there. They didn't stand up to speak. They just wanted to be a presence. But our presence was greater. Our voices were louder. It's time for them to go. It's time for the parents of the state of Florida to stand up and say, enough is enough. Parents' rights, that, that term we kind of started the conversation with, that's actually in the title of a, a really widespread bill, or now it's two laws in Florida, parental rights in education. Critics have called it the don't say gay bill. It was passed last year. It was expanded this year. What effect is that bill? Is that new? Are those laws, I should say, are those laws having on the state of Florida and about education and um, in, in schools in general in Florida? Yeah, so you know, don't say gay. How, how it's how it's been coined um, really is very vague, and that was done on purpose um, because it seems that every school, every school district is interpreting it the way that they see. Uh, they're obviously scared because um, they can see what what our governor can do. That you know, they don't want to be removed. School board members are are cautioned to, you know, not speak up because they feel that, you know, they don't want to lose their position to help all children. Um, but when we really look at what the what the wording is, it is curriculum. Um, and so, yes, in a kindergarten classroom, no kindergarten teacher wants to be talking about sexual orientation, gender expression. That's not a kindergarten uh, curriculum. So this has been blown up to be something um, that, it, that has never even been in the schools, but the effects of it and the harm we're absolutely seeing because of the interpretation of it. These laws do not require schools to discriminate against anyone. Um, what it does is allow those that are not comfortable, if you're a teacher and you're not comfortable using a, a child's pronouns, you're not forced to. Guess what? I don't want that teacher having my child in the class. Anyway, I want a teacher that is comfortable with my child. If there's a teacher that says, you know, using he and pronouns, you know, is fine. And I want everyone in my class to, to feel comfortable and respected. They are still allowed to do that. So again, the vagueness of these laws really vary state by, uh, not state by state, but school by school. And I think that the key is to really educate all the superintendents and the principals and leadership so that teachers still feel empowered to, to protect and respect our students. The new group Parenting with Pride, you have a website. And on that website, there's resources for parents and students who are trying to look for just a, you know, a little bit more information about a lot of these topics. Some of them are about anti-bullying and about um, book bans or, or how to access books that people can read if they're having trouble to find them at schools. I'm going to link to the Parenting with Pride 
website on the WMNF.org website, which people will be able to find later. But why don't you talk a little bit more about what kinds of resources you can get on the Parenting with Pride website? Sure. So one of the things that we're doing is we're offering monthly webinars and we're taking information that we get from parents. You know, what are most parents looking for? A perfect example, our July web webinar was all about um, safe schools. What does it look like to go back to school with these laws? And we were able to provide families with a one pager that literally gave them step by step how to ensure that your child is, is going to be safe in school this year. Um, our next webinar is coming up on August 31st, and it's sort of a, now that we're back in school, what are we seeing? And it's gonna be a question to answer. We have a school board member that's gonna be there. Um, and we really want parents to have the opportunity to learn. Again, the more we can educate, um, it's really scary to be a parent in Florida right now. I'll be honest, it, it really is. And we wanna make sure that our families feel supported. Um, in September, we're gonna have a webinar that talks about communication. How do we communicate to others? So, you know, especially if we don't see eye to eye, it's really important to be able to have those tools and we want our families to have those. So you also can go on, like you mentioned, we have websites, uh, we have links to websites to all the national organizations. Um, I work with HRC as well. Welcoming Schools is a phenomenal program, a phenomenal resource for parents um, to go on and find answers and, and find resources, find books that are, that are age appropriate for their children. They have books listed for elementary, middle, even for adults. And so we wanted to, again, provide a place for parents to go and um, feel supported because that's, that's the key to this right now is for us to band together, to educate and support so that we can advocate for our kids. A listener writes in with a critical question. Simon says, a parent does not have the right to raise their child or children the way they want. Outside laws that protect children kind of in suggesting that that might be happening. So how would you respond? I want this, you know, I'm assuming this person is probably a parent and wants to protect their child. I want to protect mine as well. Um, Every single major medical association has come out with gender affirming care is life saving care. So I'm going to listen to the science. I'm going to listen to the doctors and I'm going to make sure that my child has what they need in order to live a full, successful life. I want them to, to grow up in a, in a safe place. What I decide for my child may not be what this person decides for their child. And that's okay. Um, but they don't have the right to tell me how to raise my child. I'm not breaking any laws. I'm making sure that my child has every opportunity just like theirs. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on Tuesday Cafe, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Jennifer Solomon is, Solomon is Equality Florida's Parents and Family Support Manager, and she's involved in Parenting with Pride. I also want to thank our guests from earlier this hour, Stephen Walker and Mike Sanderson. If you missed any of these interviews and you want to watch them, you can watch them on our website, wmnf.org, beginning this afternoon. I want to thank our phone screener. 
DJ Spaceship, and you've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan, News and Public Affairs Director at WMNF Tampa. During this time slot tomorrow, Shelley Reback will host Midpoint. Her guests will talk about the heat. Dr. Tom Bernard from the USF College of Public Health and forensic meteorologist Andy Johnson will be guests on the show. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom. Their guests will be Robert Plunkett, a Sarasota writer whose cult classic comic novel My Search for Warren Harding was recently republished. This has been Tuesday Cafe coming to you live on August 22nd, 2023 from the studios of WMNF Tampa. You can support programming at WMNF.org. Thanks so much for listening.